Hey there, and welcome back to Scopophilia. We are the millennial movie movement, and I, of course, am your host as always, Becky Teller. And we are back in it for our summer sessions, our shorter episodes, our fun in the sun, sitting on the beach, just listening about how movies are made, sessions. Welcome back. And we are going to be picking up right where we left off last week with our special guest, Everett Burrell, special visual effects artist. In our last episode, if you haven't listened to it, we were talking about his time working for Umbrella Academy, which season three has started filming. So very excited for that. But he got to talk about his time working with Umbrella Academy and also his time working on Blade. And so we are picking back up where we left off with Blade and that conversation of what it was like working on the visual effects there and much, much more. So I'm going to stop talking again and just let you enjoy the rest of this amazing interview with Everett Burrell. Enjoy! Scopophilia is the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Well, and so it, it premiered in 1998. So when you guys were working on it, was it, when was that? Like 96, 95? No, no. They, they shot it um, in like, I'm going to say I think February of 97. Oh, okay. And uh, they, we didn't get involved in it until I'm going to say maybe October of 97. And then we worked on it probably a good four months after that. Like, okay. They came out. You want to come on? They come out. I think August of ninety eight. I want to say that's right. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, but yeah, no, we we worked on a good four or five months. Um, oh. You know, just cranking shots out, and you know, back then it was you know it's all on film, so we had to go look at it in dailies and oh, that's true wedges, and you know, we didn't have all the digital toys we have now. Right. <laughs> so would it would so would the the process of you know doing the reshoots and and all the the ashing scenes would that have been a little easier nowadays because of digital or do you yes. think it would have probably been the same? Yeah. No. The the effect simulations you can do now with with smoke and fire and water and dust, it's really photo real, and we just struggled, you know, trying to come up with ways to make that happen. We. We had some custom stuff written. We, we used a piece of software called Lightwave, which for at the time was really popular in the TV world community, but uh-huh. really hadn't done a lot of feature film stuff with it. So we were really pushing the limits to the resolution and the anti-aliasing and the motion blur and, and all that stuff. So it was an incredibly complicated task and a lot of layers because the, you know, the skin burns off and then yeah. there's a layer underneath that and then there's the ash and, you know, the ash had to turn brown and black and it was mm-hmm. incredibly complicated. Well, so there's also the scenes where um, 
like Karen has the blanking on the um, medical um, stuff that she, (laughs) the medical stuff that she uses and it kind of like explodes vampires. Um, And so like, that was a different process. Was that also you guys as well? No, we, we didn't do that. Those were done. There are a couple companies who worked on it. VIFX definitely won. Flat Earth was one. Mm -hmm. A guy named Doc Bailey. Uh, had done some stuff. Uh, there were a couple other companies that kind of came and went. I just can't remember them offhand. But, you know, I think stuff kind of got spread around to, to a couple of different companies. I think Phil Tippett might have worked on some of it as well. But, you know, I have to kind of take my head back into that. Might have been Blade too. Right. But, uh, okay. yeah, no, there's there a lot of uh, there's a lot of mix of vendors and, and different companies. But, but you know, it was – just time, you know, we, we were stressed for time and trying to make, make that release date. And then uh, yeah. when it came out, you know, I remember coming out and it was, you know, it was a decent hit, but then um, a few months, you know, after that or six months or so, the, the DVD came out and the DVD made more money than the film's release. I remember the DVD was like number one for months back when DVDs would actually make more money than the feature film. Right. Right. So then let me ask you, um, do you have like a favorite moment or like scene from this movie that like stands out to you? Well, that we worked on or just in general? Just in general. Um, I think I like the sword fight between Deacon Frost and Blade. Mm-hmm, I think that's a pretty mm-hmm. good fight. Um, there's some, yeah, there's some, there's all kinds of fun moments, you know. Throw, throwing the little kid into the <laughs> ice cream stand <laughs> like that. I mean, there's some great stuff. I think uh, I think Stephen Norton has a cameo in the film. Um, yeah, I think he does. There, I, I just don't know where it, it is. And I think he plays Morbius in the in the really? film. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I, I got to go back and look at the film, but uh, he does have a cameo. Um, no, I mean, just in general, I just love the, the, all the fights I thought were fantastic. They're really, mm-hmm. really, really, really good. Um, and the cinematography in general, that was just really beautiful. Um, Agreed. Favorite moment? Let's see. I think when, when Blade comes down and does his final kick-ass moment, when, when he gets you know freed mm-hmm. uh, from the Lamagra blood pit, or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He kicks some ass. I think that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, that whole because he takes out like what twenty vampires or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, there's a great honest trailer for Blade that's really funny if you ever get to watch it. Where you know they talk about uh, all the stunt guys waiting around to take their punches. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot of stunt guys in the background just standing there waiting for their turn to get killed. Right. Right. Well, um, I love it because you know you have all these moments between uh, Blade and Quinn. And where he just is like not killing Quinn. He's like leaving him to, to give messages to Frost. And then Quinn's like, all right, this is my moment. I've got two new hands. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and within two seconds, Blade has already killed him. And I think that's a great moment. <laughs> He's a great actor. I, I worked with him on a movie called Max Payne. And he, he had some funny stories about, uh, about working on Blade as well. But uh, we mean, again, what a great list of, you know, character actors, you uh, know, I mean, uh, we have uh, uh, I don't know, his name escapes me. Well, Chris Christopherson. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was I think that was great casting. 
hundred percent. And it, it's fun to see because, like, you like I was watching it this time. I'm like, I know them from different movies. I just have to pinpoint what they are. But they do such a great job in this movie because it doesn't feel like a typical like comic book movie. It feels more like a like a Resident Evil or Underworld kind of movie rather than like the Marvel movies we know today. Yeah, no, for sure. It's it's got its own unique style. And then I thought Guillermo did a great job on the second one. You know, that's got its own unique style as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you've worked on the first one and you worked on the third one. And so was it like a different vibe coming back to it? Yeah, no, definitely. You know, I think, uh, you know, Wesley was, you know, at his height of fame for Mm -hmm. the tax scandal. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Did some, uh, some time for that one. I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was, you know, I think that was tough. I, I think he was tough on Goyer. Uh, I think Goyer even said it, you know, in press as well. He did mm-hmm. not have a good time in that film and Wesley made it difficult. Um, you know, it was a big, big production. You know, we shot that in Vancouver. Uh, I was on set for a bit of that and there's a, you know, a lot of effects on that. We, we did the, uh, the disease that spreads out mm-hmm. of, uh, the main vampire and gets injected with the, uh, the sort of virus that kills the vampires and comes out of his mouth. We did a lot of that stuff where the, the vampires all get the plague and are dying at the end. Mm-hmm. So that was you know, a lot of work, and, you know, a lot of match moving. And you know, luckily had technology had caught up quite a bit. So it certainly did help us out, but yeah, no, was a, that was a huge set all made of steel, that whole, like five story interior of that, of that building was just massive and all the fights and effects and stunt people. And those movies are expensive. Yeah. A lot of crew, you get a lot of stunt people. That's, that's a lot of money per day. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would think (laughs) so. (laughs) And so then let me also ask you, because blade has a lot of like, uh, blade and blade Trinity. They both have a lot of like, uh, like CGI effects. And so I did also see that you worked on Pan's Labyrinth with Guillermo del Toro. And so I know Pan's Labyrinth has a lot of practical effects in addition to special effects. Was How is that kind of process different than working on like just strictly FX? Well, we always try to have something based in, in, in the practical world, you know, mm-hmm. that really does help. I'd rather enhance something practically than do it all CGI. Um, whenever possible, uh, obviously something like Pogo and Umbrella Academy, he's all CGI. Right. Because we knew we didn't have enough time, money, resources to make a, a really good practical chimpanzee suit. And even if we did, I had, a, I had this horrible feeling that we'd spend, you know, 800 grand on a suit and a performer and, and all this time and getting him in and out of the suit. And then we're going to end up replacing it because no one's going to like it. So. You know, mm. I made that decision to go all CG, but with Pan's Labyrinth, you know, Guillermo loves the practical stuff. So do I <laughs> try to really keep, uh, you know, it all rooted in practical. Uh, like if it was Pan, I would, you know, I'd paint his legs out and, and you know, put in the the proper legs, the goat mm-hmm. leg kind of thing. And with the pale man, I we put the eyeballs in. And then uh, when uh, the pale man eats the fairies, that was a lot of fun. We went back to our roots. <laughs> Guillermo goes, how are we going to do this? And I said, you know, we're, let's get some 
condoms and fill them full of fake blood and <laughs> give them to Doug. So Doug's holding this giant condom full of fake blood and like a big sausage thing in his hand. And when he bites it, you know, it stretches and pops and it just caramels up. It's, oh, it's I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had fun doing that. We shot in Spain and, and it was hot, you know, middle of summer and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, great DP, Guillermo Navarro and, and just a real, again, a great crew, real dedicated, beautiful work. And DDT did the makeup effects, did a phenomenal job. And I was really honored. That was, that was my first solo VFX soup job that I had done. Um, I mean, normally I'd, I'd worked for other soups or been on set helping out, but that was one on, on me, that whole show. And definitely a labor of love and uh, got, got a lot of attention for that. So and I was really, really happy with how it came out. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful movie. Undoubtedly. Yeah, it is. And you know, it's, you know, Guillermo's got a great imagination, great style and it's fun working on it. hundred percent. I cannot get enough of Guillermo del Toro just in general. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've, you've worked with Guillermo del Toro a few times now because you also worked on hellboy as well yeah no hellboy you, you know kind of a similar situation to blade where we were brought in after the film was shot and, okay and um they had, they're doing some reshoots and we you know had to fill in some sequences again you know they kind of ran out of money towards the end so they had to find cheaper companies to come in and help do some of the stuff and, and I was mm-hmm. at a place called Cafe Effects at the time, and, and we were able to uh, do some really nice tests. That you know, one company was charging an arm and a leg for this effect, and we figured out how to do it cheaper, and uh, we sort of saved the day on that. And, and that, again, that was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, love working on it. Great times. You know, Guillermo was, was hysterical. <laughs> and that led to uh, obviously working on Pan's Labyrinth. Amazing. That's, I mean, I'm not, I'm trying not to nerd out as much as possible just because that's kind of blows my mind a little that, you know, Guillermo del Toro and, and all these amazing people. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, you, I haven't talked to Guillermo in years. Uh, you know, he's obviously busy. Uh, mm-hmm. He does a lot of work in Toronto. I do a lot of work in Toronto. I have a feeling we'll run into each other one of these days again, but uh, you know, people get caught in what we call the celebrity bubble and, uh, you just lose touch of them and, you know, it's not malicious or, you know, they're not trying to do it on purpose. They just, their lives are taking a much different path than our lives. Right. No, I mean that I, you, you could say that about regular people too, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think so, doubly so when, you know, you're a rich and famous director and I think, yeah, you know, some, I think sometimes they're, you know, back in the old days, I could just call Guillermo and now it's, like, well, what's my motive? You know, right? <laughs> Do I want something? I was like, no, I, no, I don't. But uh, you know, <laughs> again, you know, it's it's always nice to have that in your back pocket. You know, I can always use Guillermo as a reference. I'm sure he'd, he'd say good things about me. Absolutely. Well, that's an amazing reference. One, lucky you. <laughs> yeah. And so, I do also want to ask you, just kind of switching gears slightly. Because you've also worked on American Horror Story, which is another favorite of mine. And you worked on Freak Show specifically. And so were you involved in in the two-headed um, yeah, exactly. uh, visual effects? That's exactly what I was brought in for. So my friend Aaron Kruger uh, 
does the makeup for all Ryan Murphy shows. And she contacted me. I can't remember how it's on Facebook or something and asked if I, you know, would talk to her about this challenging effect. And, um, I told her what I thought I would do. And then, uh, on sort of a whim, I did a test with the, one of the production assistants we, we had in the office at the time where I was working and she had a really unique look. And, um, I did a test where, you know, I shot her twice, you know, I shot her singing, um, uh, you say tomato, I say tomato, and that's called the whole thing off. I had her sing that song, but as the two heads. And then in you know compositing software, we were able to stitch them together in a pretty good way. And I mean, it looked really, really good. I didn't do anything fancy. It was just sort of a lock-off shot. Mm-hmm. And then I brought that to the meeting with Ryan, and I opened my laptop. And, you know, Ryan, again, he's a busy guy. He doesn't want to deal with any nonsense and i just right. turned on my laptop i didn't say a word i just played it for him and he went that's it you're hired was it <laughs> like was like <laughs> no questions asked he said just make it happen and i'm like all right so i did the first episode and then um i was getting ready to do another show i mean i i you know they'd already shot most of it in new orleans so mm-hmm. they're in post-production but, you know, those shots were expensive and we gave them parameters. Like if you, if you keep the camera locked off, it's going to be one price. If you keep the camera moved fairly simple, it's going to be another price. But if you move the camera around a lot without using any motion control repeatability, mm-hmm. it's going to you know, drive your costs through the roof. It could be 15, 20 grand a shot. And that's really kind of unheard of in TV land, especially on that show. Right. And unfortunately... Um, I did the first episode and then, uh, I stepped away because, uh, it got too political for me, uh, where I was working, the company I was working with, um, Mm -hmm. didn't want to, I think, you know, kind of, I'm trying to think the right word, really submit to Ryan's will, even though I think it would have been a good thing for the company to to get in with Ryan Mm -hmm. in the long term. I think they're a little short-sighted, but, uh, and then I left the company ultimately. That's really what happened. I was not unhappy. I was not happy where I was. Um, I was really happy to help Aaron and Ryan out solve that puzzle, but mm-hmm. then I walked away and I, I went off to uh, another project. Okay. And so was it more of like, was Ryan Murphy asking too much for, or not like appreciating the work that goes into it? You would no, say, or? I, th- I think he just wanted it. He loved what we did, but it didn't, uh-huh. want, to pay, didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, fair enough. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I think there's the prestige of working for Ryan Murphy, which is, it's a great, that's an honor. Uh, it is. But I think the company that I was at at the time did not feel that way. Um, mm. You know, I, I think, you know, and that's, it's for all visual effects companies and any film company. Um, there is the business side and, you know, we got to make a profit. And then there's sometimes when you don't make a profit, but you make a relationship mm. and it was up to them. I, you know, it wasn't my company. I could not tell them what to do. Uh, they made the decision. I think it was a wrong one because then like the next episode, they won the Emmy for that. The other company right. basically, you know, they didn't steal my idea, but they took what I figured <laughs> out. 
<laughs> so I was, right. little, I was a little pissed off about that, but you know, whatever, you know, shit happens. There's nothing you can do. It just life goes on. Um, but I was, you know, I was proud of, of at least trying to figure it out because it was a difficult thing to figure out. And I, you know, Sarah Paulson's such a great actress and I really wanted to make that work for her and, and all that. But, you know, again, I'm proud of it, but you know, case of raw, Yeah. <laughs> and so has there been a, a project that you've worked on? Cause the, it's interesting to hear you speak about, um, like the work you've done, because on one hand there is kind of the business side and then there's also like this fun puzzle artistic side too, that, I think you uh, are dealing with in, in your career and in, in, in what you do, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, no, hundred uh, percent. There, there's been a few shows that were just nothing but fun challenge and very encouraging. one of them being Sin City with Robert Rodriguez, where mm. I can't speak highly enough of the guy who was trying something really unique and daring by doing this all black and white graphic novel. Yeah. You know, three part story, uh, all shot on green screen. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, letting us go for it. And he would, you know, give us minimal direction and we'd show him things and he, he'd go, mm, no, or he'd go, gosh, darn, that's way even better than I thought. So that was probably one of the most fun experiences I had. Um, you know, trying to just creatively find cool stuff for the director to be amazed by. And, and we just hit it out of the park every time. And that was a lot of fun. So would you say, I mean, maybe you've already answered the question, but would you say you have a, a project that you would say is your favorite that you've worked on so far? Yeah. You know, I, I, I know it sounds cliche, but Umbrella Academy has been sort of a dream come true. It really has. My, my <laughs> relationship with Steve Blackman, the showrunner, is great. And, you know, he's a big geek, too. He loves this stuff. And, and we just have a lot of fun. And, and I, you know, I've gotten to the point in my career where I'm old enough and wise enough and people actually listen to me when I talk. And that has taken years to develop and <laughs> own that skill. Wow. What's and, that like? <laughs> exactly. You know, and then getting the chance to direct. And that's been a, a dream of mine. And working so closely with the cast and crew. And and again, you know, I, I said it before, you know, once a butler, always a butler. So you got to snap out of that butler mode and not just be cleaning up people's messes. You know, you got you got to make your own destiny in this business. And it's, it's hard. It's taken years. And I've had a lot of failures. I've had some successes. I've learned for, from all of them. And it, it, it taught me a lot, but definitely taught me to identify good people to work with and stick with it as opposed to just thinking the grass is always greener somewhere else because it's not always greener. And uh, if you got a good thing going, you should definitely write it out. Very nice. And so would you have any like advice for people who are trying to, you know, break into your industry, people interested in uh, special effects or producing even? For sure. I mean, look, you know, there's, you know, I didn't go to college. I was accepted to CalArts, and I ended up working for Roger Corman for the summer before I was to start CalArts. And I asked Roger his advice, and he said, you will learn more working for me uh, than you will ever in, in, in any film school. And 
you know, whether he was right or wrong, I made that decision to not go. Mm-hmm. And I stayed, you know, I've been in the business since 83 professionally working, making money at it. And I regret not going to college. I think knowing the basics and the foundation of art techniques and the history of art, I think is just as important. So I would suggest if you can afford or figure out a way to go, I think having a college degree is really important, especially in Hollywood. A little known fact, most production executives, in fact, all that I know of, all have college degrees, at least a bachelor's. Um, So to really, you know, if you want one of those jobs, you have to have a college degree. Um, So that's really important. Just being an artist, that's fine too. But uh, again, I think knowing the basics and the foundation, simple things like the color wheel, you Mm -hmm. know, understanding who the great artists are because they're going to get referred to in meetings. You know, people are going to ask you, you do you know who N.C. Wyeth is? Mm -hmm. Frank Frazette is, you know, do you know who Dolly is? And, and, you know, you need to have that education. I'm self-taught and I have books and all this stuff and I, I love it, but. There's even things I don't know, and I, I find out new artists all the time. I have to look them up. So I think education is incredibly important, and I think if you can manage it and at least get a bachelor's degree, it's something to fall back on to because, you know, film, the film industry is a little flaky, just so you right. know. <laughs> it's not like it's a – especially now, it's it's all changed. You know, it's, it's all streaming. So it's the same storytelling and same ideas. Um, but, and also understanding story and writing. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I encourage everyone to write um, short stories or scripts. I think that's really important because you got to remember it, it all starts with the written word. And no matter what project I do, it always starts with the script. And, you know, words are cheap. You can type on a typewriter or you can type on your word processor and, right. and write a story that is not going to cost you nothing but time. And, uh, you know, make your own destiny. If you can write and direct and produce your own stuff, that's really where it's at. I mean, I love working for other people, but I'm also got a taste for doing my own things. And mm-hmm. once that creative, you know, urge, you get that urge, it's something you need to scratch. And uh, I suggest, you know, working for other people is good training, but try to remember, stay true to yourself. Absolutely. That is Great advice. I cannot agree with you more about education and and working hard and and identifying, you know, who you are and who you want to be. Um, Just simply amazing. Wonderful advice. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. I just got to tell my kids that. (laughs) So I'm trying to think if there's anything else we could go through before I let you get on with your day. Now I'll look at I'll look at my credit list here. <laughs> well, you know, I did a lot of zombie movies. Yes, <laughs> I, I, did a lot, I did a lot of zombie movies. I I met you know long life friends uh, on Day of the Dead uh, in 1984, 85. That's where I met Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger and George Romero and Tom Savini. And, you know, that was a, was a dream come true. I you know, these are guys I'd read about, especially George and Tom in Fangoria magazine when I was a kid and sort of working with my heroes. That was, that was a trip. And then I got to be a zombie in day of the dead. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of zombie and a lot of vampire movies. Uh, yeah. you know, Lost Boys was a lot. We didn't get to touch on Lost Boys 
Oh. Much, but that was a lot of fun to work on. That was amazing. That I mean, talk about big Hollywood production. That set, the log cabin house they lived in, that set was just uh, exquisite. It was, it was amazing. And I uh, love, I love that those film. makeups. Great Canon designed those with B. Neal. And those are great vampire makeups. And if you look closely on, on the blood in Lost Boys, it has a weird quality. And it's because Greg had us mix glitter inside the blood so that's why the what? blood kind of sparkles yeah watch it again um, <laughs> the the blood and the vampires that come out of the vampires has glitter in it <laughs> i am definitely going to watch out for that yep. next time you'll notice 100%. it next time <laughs> so were you um in terms of lost boys were you, so you said somebody else had designed the the makeup for for the vampires like when they shift their face i guess that's the way to say it um and so you were involved with the blood and what, were there other elements that you were involved in as well that like we would recognize? Well, you know, I, I was working for Greg Canham and, and Greg's a very okay. famous artist who uh, was won many Oscars. So I was on his team um, and, you know, we would, you know, make molds and sculpts and do, you know, all the different jobs that, that you do in the shop. And then I would go to set sometimes and help with some of the gags. And then I left that show early to go work on the hidden mm-hmm. uh, with Kevin Yeager. And then I think after that phantasm two um, with uh, Mark Shostrom and Greg Nicotero and stuff. So I didn't finish lost boys to the end, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And we had taken, Greg took the makeup over from another makeup artist over at boss films. A guy named Steve Johnson. And I, there was some, brouhaha and something happened over there and then they gave all the work to greg and greg redesigned this makeup from scratch oh okay interesting and you worked on harry and the hendersons is that that's correct that's correct i was part of rick baker's team and uh we made molds and teeth i made harry's teeth (laughs) well (laughs) like you know 18 of his heads you know they have all all these different heads (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was, that was great. Great. Again, working for Rick Baker was a dream come true. Uh, a lot of fun. And then when he won the Oscar for it, I was really, really happy. for him. <laughs> I mean, I can't get over what, I mean, what an amazing career that you've had. I mean, just in general. <laughs> it's been a long one. And, uh, you know, it's been a trip. A lot of ups and downs. A lot of great movies. A lot of movies that sucked. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, you know, it, it, it's like it's lightning in a bottle. What can you say? You know, it, mm. you know, trying to predict what movie's going to be great, especially nowadays. I mean, they're they're either a Marvel movie or a Lucasfilm movie, and right? Else, you know, it's. I think they figured out a formula for for a guaranteed hit. But back then, in the eighties, they took a lot of risks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, and so now, I mean, especially in. 2020 now it's we're living in covid times you know what do you how do you see hollywood kind of changing to kind of adapt with this do you think do you think media is going to take a little bit longer now because of this or do you think they're trying to create some kind of hybrid thought process of of getting things out on time still well in terms of theaters you know it's really sad and frustrating for me you know i'd love movies Luckily, in our area, a couple of theaters have opened back up to 25% capacity, so it's been kind of fun. Mm-hmm. I took my daughter for her birthday to see the uh, the animated Adams Family movie, and, and that was a lot of fun. 
So yeah, I really miss it, but, but streaming is such a giant thing and it was so big even before COVID. Mm -hmm. And then when COVID hit, it was, you know, I hate to say like the, the last nail in the coffin for theatrical uh, releases, which I think are going to be very different. Um, Also the Supreme court um, basically modified the law that allows studios to now own theaters. Um, it was mm. called the Paramount Decree from the 50s. Um, and because back in the day, you know, studios owned all the theaters. Right. And uh, and then they also could book all their own stuff. And if you wanted to, uh, you know, if you wanted Gone with Wind, you had to take seven other crappy movies. And right. <laughs> called Block Booking, I think. And, and they broke all that up. It was sort of an antitrust case, but now it's been eliminated. So I'm really curious to see if. Disney buys up a bunch of these movie theaters and makes them exclusive, you know, Disney and Lucasfilm Marvel theaters Mm. where you'd have like a Marvel store inside or a Disney store inside, kind of like the El Capitan is in Hollywood. But uh, I'm curious to see if they're going to make that leap, but uh, only time will tell. I just, I miss going to theaters. I miss that experience. I love being home and watching movies, but you know, there's nothing like a 40 foot screen. Yeah, and some nice fresh popcorn on top of it. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, for sure. And you know, it's it's sad. It just it is times they are a changing. That's all I can say. And for us, it just means more content, more work, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the distribution side, it's just going to be a lot weirder. And uh, I feel bad for the theater owners. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying it on here a lot. It's a brave new world we're living in. And uh, it's interesting to see how things are going to change or stay the same or kind of warp into something new. And yeah, yeah it's it's unfortunate, but it, it seems like maybe theaters don't have much longer a life. I don't, you know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's tough to say. Um, you know, obviously if a vaccine comes along and things get better, you know, people want to go out more. Like Disneyland, for example. Yeah, that's that is a major cash cow for the Disney Corporation. All those parks bring in a lot of money, and the fact that they're not open—that's got to be putting a hurt on Disney for sure. Yeah, I bet. It certainly is a. Um, it's a great warning for the future, and uh, again, that's where streaming comes in. You can safely watch new content from the safety of your home. I mean, how fortunate. We are to have Netflix and Disney Plus and all this stuff so we can continue to watch fun content. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're just going to have to wait and see, I guess, at the end of the, at the, end of the day. <laughs> well, let's see what happens tomorrow come the election. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we got 24 hours. To, maybe the whole world will be gone by then. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> we're, we're hoping for a good outcome. Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to get too political here, but uh, I've had enough four years of this fucking nutcase yeah Frank. <laughs> <laughs> no 100 100 percent. so fingers crossed and and good vibes only for yep. tomorrow and then Absolutely. we'll see what happens with movie theaters after that God save the movie theaters <laughs> yes hashtag save the movie theaters <laughs> there you go well everett thank you so much for coming on the show this has been an absolute pleasure i must say 
you, Ben. You are welcome back anytime to talk okay. about any movie you want. <laughs> well, hopefully next time we talk, we'll, we can talk about season three of the Umbrella Academy. I would love that hundred percent. Let's let's set it up as soon as they release the the date of when season three is coming out. I will email you and be like, let's do it. A huge thanks to Everett Burrell for coming on the show and talking about his career. I was so blown away, even just when he sent me his credit list, and also blown away at how many amazing people he's been able to work with and just truly a respect for what he does. I had so much fun. Cannot thank him enough for coming on and very excited for Umbrella Academy Season 3 and all of the other projects that he is working on in the future. As always, if you liked the show and you just need more film content, film things, you have a couple options. Option one, you can follow us on Instagram at scopophilia underscore podcast, or you can follow us on TikTok at scopophilia the podcast. And of course, if you really liked the show, then you will make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe because it helps us out. And I love hearing from you guys, of course. And since you're already, you know, out and about doing all of these social media things, make sure you're telling your friends about us and your family about us and your family of friends and your friends of family and, and everybody else in between about us because we love expanding the conversation. We love talking with you. And I want everybody to know about us and get in on this conversation. As always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, here leading the millennial movie movement on Scopophilia. And I will see you all next week for a brand new Summer Session episode. Bye!